Well, when I was uh, mentored in pastoral ministry, especially in preaching a little over 15 years ago, I was told that there's one thing that you should never talk about in the pulpit. I was told that there is no way that you can win when you talk about it, and people will automatically tune you out and make assumptions about your motives when you talk about it. And so what am I going to do today? We're going to talk about it, all right? And what is it? It's politics and government. Hooray! Yeah, it's great. Um, Hey, don't hate on me. I'm just the mailman delivering the mail, all right? In the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters have been talking about how Jesus, uh, following Jesus and believing the gospel, transforms your heart because of God's grace. Starting in chapter 12 uh, that we just finished last week, the book begins to pivot to talk about how God's grace shapes how you relate to the different relationships in your life. And it's, a, it's really a theme for the Apostle Paul in all of his epistles. You look at uh, Ephesians, you look at Galatians, you look at a lot at 1 Corinthians, you look at all these epistles that the Apostle Paul has written and Peter as well. And they begin to get explicit about what it means for your relationships to be transformed. Um, so now when it comes to government, the gospel is reshaping and transforming all of our relationships, including our relationship to the government. Now, many Christians have a pretty skewed view of government. On one hand, we either idolize it as a savior, right? We can't, we can't keep our eyes, you know, off of the, the screen, off of the app, uh, looking to see if our candidate and his agenda or her agenda is going to go forward or not. On the other hand, we villainize it as an enemy. But the Bible does neither. Government in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is a God-ordained necessary entity that the kingdom of God grows in the midst of. Uh, I think our disillusionment uh, is mostly because we have believed that America is supposed to be a Christian nation. The problem with the idea of America as a Christian nation is that in the Bible, the, the word Christian is only attached to people. It's not attached to governments, it's not attached to systems, it's attached to people. And anytime we attach it to anything other than a person, it's a marketing term. So what most American Christians have desired, and it's not a bad desire, but it's, but it, but it's, a, but, but it's to be in a place where it's easier to be a Christian, right? Uh, where it doesn't cost anything or require any effort to keep your life in line with Jesus. And now because kind of the evangelical haze has lifted from our country and even the city of Atlanta to some degree, we are becoming more and more honest, and it costs more now to hold a Christian worldview than it 10 years ago. Um, so what's, what has the church's reaction been to this? For the most part, it's been uh, to hate on the government. It's all the government's fault. Now, government has the power, um, no government has the power to stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Can I say that one more time? No government has the power to stop or even excel the kingdom of God from advancing. If you look at the history of the church, the times when, uh, when, when Christians have suffered the most have been the times that the kingdom of God has advanced the most. You look historically in the history of the church, that holds to be true. So what is the goal of Romans 13? Why does Paul put this in the middle of here? Well, my suspicion is this. It's, it's so that the people of God would have a spirit-driven relationship to, the, to God's institution of civil government. So, you know, the tension is this, is that in our context, it's not just the authority of government that we have a problem with. It's really any authority that we have a problem with. 
We hate the idea of submitting to anyone or anything, whether that be a kid to a teacher or ourselves to a judge. But the problem with this is that in the Bible, submission to God and one another is one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity. It's not just Paul who writes about this in Romans 13. It's in other places in the Bible, such as Ephesians 2 that Sherry looked at. But it's also in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you've got a Bible, I just want to hit this before we get into Romans 13. 1 Peter 2, we're going to start in verse 13 here. And Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, Peter says something very helpful here in 1 Peter 2, that there is a form of freedom that exists within the church that says we don't have any authorities over us so that we can do what we want, when we want, with whomever we want. And and basically what the scriptures go on to teach us is that this is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not the freedom that Christ died for. Freedom in Christ is a freedom to serve God in every single relationship that we have. And we see this in nearly all of the epistles. And it goes into into detail in how it describes this, this idea of living as servants and how we're now freed up to not gain our identity from any of our relationships. But because we're so secure in Christ that we're freed up to serve in every relationship, even in our relationship to the civil government. He says, honor the emperor here. Do you know who the emperor probably was when Peter wrote this? Nero. Nero was not an honorable person. Nero once threw a party and lit up his courtyard with Christians that he had set on fire for fun. That's a true documented thing, okay? He was not a person that when you looked at him was honorable. But yet the scriptures say that we're called to honor the emperor. We're called to honor dishonorable people because the office in which they're in is honorable. See, that's the difference. I think we can really glean something from that today because we, we tend to jump from ditch to ditch, right? If the person that, 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 that kind of we're, we're behind is we think they're honorable, you know, we, we kind of excuse the dishonorable traits about them. We highlight the honorable traits, and we kind of, we kind of villainize the other person. And, and the reality is, is that there's common grace in every uh, governmental institution in our country. There are things that, that, are, uh, that please God in every single one, and we can honor those kinds of things, right? <clears throat> and, and as we look at this, the thing that I want you to see is that as much as it depends on us and in any way we can show honor, we are called to honor the office because it's an office that God instituted. And in doing this, what do we do? As Christians, we give evidence to the validity of the power of the gospel. And and the scriptures say that when we do this, that it silences foolish people. 
Now, if you think about the context, this is countercultural for, for a couple reasons. <clears throat> the, the government of the day in Rome uh, that we're going to look at in Romans 13 uh, was completely secular and hostile to the gospel. Way more hostile than the American government was to Christians. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and Peter says, as much as it's possible, honor the emperor. The second thing we see that, that, that makes this countercultural is this, is that the Jewish people expected a Messiah who would overthrow the corrupted political systems of the day as a way to show the triumph of their Messiah. Because there were an oppressed people suffering at the hands of these corrupt tyrants. Uh, and the best news imaginable to them in that day was to really be on top for once. But Jesus instead brought the kingdom in through a different kind of power, didn't he? The power of what? Humility. Humility. The scriptures say in Philippians 2 that we're supposed to have the mind of Christ who, who didn't take on, who didn't, who didn't uh, you know, look at the, his authority that he could have had with the Father in heaven as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and even died on a cross. And, and the scriptures say we're supposed to have that kind of mentality, that kind of servant-hearted nature as we relate to the government that God has put into place. Our role as Christians is not to overthrow human institutions like the government. To influence? Absolutely. To be salt and light? Yes. To speak prophetically to those in authority? Yes, yes, yes. To rebuke them for unrighteousness and warn them of judgment to come? Absolutely. But not to overthrow. Here's our big idea for today, church. Our submission to God-ordained authority is the most powerful witness of the servant-hearted nature of God's people. So let's dig into that. We see that a willingness to submit to authority is an evidence of the freedom that we have in the gospel. To be settled and secure in Jesus, the government doesn't have to be going our way. That's what the scriptures are saying here. Submission for us takes courage and it takes deep security. Biblical submission takes faith that Jesus is actually going to come through in power like he says he's going to. And in the Bible we read about submitting to God in lots of different ways. Take for instance James 4. Submit to God so that you can resist the devil, he says. Uh, or how about he, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. A lot of people think Ephesians 5, well that's where it says wives are supposed to submit to husbands, husbands are supposed to submit to wives. No, Ephesians 5 says submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. And then it, as a, sub, as a kind of a sub, subset of that, it says uh, wives and husbands are to do that. And we read about submitting to spiritual leaders in Hebrews chapter 13. And in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, we read about submitting to the civil government. This is a countercultural expression of freedom that's found in the security of our identity in Jesus. And that's how we have power. So now let's get into the sermon, all right? Got two points, two points, not three. I'm cutting y'all short today. Uh, and it's this, that was a joke, um, but you guys almost got it. First part is this, the government has a part to play in the kingdom of God. The government has a part to play in the kingdom of God. The second part is this, Christians are called to live as dual citizens. Let's dig into that first part. We're going to look at Romans 13, 1 through 4. So as we look at the, gover the, the part that government has to play in the kingdom of God, there are really four historic views of church and state. And John Stott's done a great job in describing these. And I'll just quickly outline them for you so you can kind of see how it's gone throughout history. The first one 
is this, it's, it's theocracy. Theocracy is this, is when the church controls the state. So we've seen this happen uh, lots. Uh, we've seen this happen in Vatican City right now, right? Roman emperor, um, Roman Catholicism. Uh, we see this happen in Islamic-dominated countries and states as well, right? Doesn't usually go well. Second thing, uh, second kind of option is this, is Erastianism. Erastianism is where the state controls the church. This is also bad, isn't it? That we see this in old Europe, we see this in places like China, Russia, really, really bad, really, really costly to believe something other than what the state wants you to believe. <clears throat> we see this in Constantinianism. There we go. This is Constantine. Uh, it's where the state favors the church, and the church makes accommodations with the state in light of its favored status. Now, when you, anytime you see the word accommodate or compromise, you know you're in trouble, right? This is not good as well. So this is where they seek to encourage and collaborate with one another where possible. I'm sorry, that's not it. This is ultimately what led to the Christians to compromise their ethics on the basis of how much Caesar would agree to and make part of uh, Roman culture, like Christianity. So it's trying to fit Christianity into Roman culture is, is what we saw there. The best example I think that we see is the one that we hold to uh, today, which is this partnership model. This is what Paul has in view here. It's, it's where the church and the state recognize that they each play God-given roles with unique responsibilities, and they seek to encourage and to collaborate with one another where possible. I think, uh, I think Paul writes Romans 13 expecting the unbelieving pagan government of the Roman Empire to get their hands on the gospel, okay? I think he's anticipating them to open this letter. And what Paul wants to make clear is this, that there is no power like the power of the gospel. And he doesn't want to conflate the role of the state and the power within with the gospel's power. Because even we read in places like Acts chapter 17, like it the gospel, when it takes hold of a community or a people, there are implications in the, in the, uh, in the, in the government, right? We see that the, the, the expression of one unbeliever was this, that it's like they're turning our world upside down, right? Uh, and so what Paul wants to say is that there's a way to live and be transformed that honors the government that God's put in place. It doesn't have to usurp. It doesn't have to take over. That's not the way of the gospel, so Romans 13, 1 through 4, let me remind you what it says here. He says this, let every person be subject to live under the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. This had to be so countercultural to hear this, right? But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Wow. 
The bottom line that Paul affirms three different times in four verses is this. The state's authority is given by God. God has set government in place. It doesn't mean that government is always enforced in line with God's will, does it? But nevertheless, the power to govern itself is granted by God himself. Because God is omnipotent or all-powerful, any power in this world comes from the hand of God. The primary role of the state in this text, in this context right here, Paul has in mind, is in relation to good and evil. So when government is working in line with God's will, it does two things. It enforces consequences on bad conduct, and it promotes good conduct for a peaceable society. So let's think about that first point for just a second. It enforces consequences on bad conduct. In recent history, uh, this is what has become troubling. Some people have experienced brokenness in enforcing the law, and the discussion around it has led some of our citizens to second-guess uh, its place. There have been calls to abolish the police. We've seen entire cities uh, have their police forces resign because of this, haven't we? <clears throat> the truth is, it's complicated and difficult to enforce laws. Amen? So complicated. But it must be done, church. The only thing that's worse than a corrupt law enforcement is no law enforcement at all. And we see the tyranny that comes from that. And because of that, to those in our church, in our community that enforce law, that seek to do that well, we need to hold them in the highest esteem because they have such a complicated and convoluted role to play in the kingdom of God. Yet they are willing to enter in. The second thing that we see that Romans 13 talks about is this that it promotes good conduct for a peaceable society. No government is perfect, but this is the general idea of what God is accomplishing in government for the sake of his world. That when we abide by the law, we experience a sense of freedom and safety. Now, it's not always the case, but generally speaking, it is true more so in this country than in most. And I think we forget that sometimes. He mentions the sword here. I'm just going to go ahead and open the whole thing up here, right? Uh, the sword re refers to the consequences, consequences of punishment of bad conduct. So he's saying that those that exercise judgment on lawlessness are not doing it just because they're into themselves and egotistical. No. He's saying the sword uh, is a part of any government. So my question is, is Paul talking about capital punishment here? I mean, is that where we need to go this morning? Here's what I do know. That the sword is sharp for a reason. <laughs> to be used as a weapon. Our passage does not discuss all the complexities of capital punishment or just war. But I think the Bible does not see the concept as evil in and of itself. And this is affirmed in places like Acts chapter 25, verse 11, where, where Paul says to Festus, who's one of the Roman rulers of the day, he says this. He says, if, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. So that pretty strongly implies that Paul saw some things as worthy of death. Now the scriptures don't give us all the ins and outs of how governments should govern in this regard. However, however governments bear the responsibility of protecting all of their citizens. And when any injustice is overlooked, the wrongdoing only grows, doesn't it? And here's what happens. The strong trample the weak. And the powerful 
trample the vulnerable. Whether that's a criminal lashing out its, at its victims, whether that's an unborn child in a mother's womb, whether that's a neglected child in need of care, whether that's a financial predator on an elderly person, or an individual having their rights stripped away by some kind of big corporation. The government serves these big common grace purposes in God's kingdom, and everyone benefits from it to some degree. And for the most part, the church isn't called to influence from the top down. That's what Israel really wanted. They wanted to influence from the top down because it's much easier to influence from the top down. But rather, Jesus has this kind of subversive kingdom in mind that, that influences from the bottom up. And if this were not the case, the Bible would not talk so much about submission. If you're in government, I want you to know this. You are serving a God-given role in our country and in our church. You are in many ways, as Paul says here, a minister of God's will. And because of that, you must pursue those purposes with diligence, with justice, and humility. Because you will give an account to how you have governed. Let me say that again. You will give an account to how you have governed. Just like I will give an account to how I have taught, how I have lived. And I know that many of you are in government, know this, and you take it so seriously. Even in the face of all the criticism and all the mockery. And for that, your church wants to thank you for representing the purposes of King Jesus and his kingdom in your work. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I know it's not easy for you. But there's another side of this conversation too, the one that you've got rolling around in the back of your mind. This doesn't mean that there's never a situation where we would uh, not resist the power or influence of the government. When we talk about the worst tyrants of our days, you know, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Saddams, the Bible is not saying that God is responsible for all of their behavior. What Paul is saying is that all human authority is derived from God's authority. And many, many political leaders throughout history have misused God's authority that has been delegated to them. And they will be held to account for that. But our approach is to be similar to that of Jesus' approach to the governor that he stood before, Pilate. Do you remember that situation? John chapter 19 recounts it for us. Pilate, the governor, says to the Roman governor of the province there, says to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, I am God to you, Jesus. And Jesus answers him, in his broken body, his bloody face. And he says, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Goodness, what would it be like for the people of God to have that kind of meek power in the face of whatever persecution is going to come our way. 
to be able to, to sit under situations that you even <clears throat> sit under those situations and to, to, to just be so settled in the power and presence of God, to have the power to offer yourself in the midst of a corrupted government. So the question is for us, as we look ahead to our country's future, no matter what it holds, is how do we stay steady when the government goes bad? And I think Jesus gives us the answer. We choose to believe that not even bad government can overthrow the goodness of God. And I think we see the tide shifting in our own culture, and it does us good to, be remember, to, to remember and be comforted by Jesus' posture. And because of this, we have the biggest view of government imaginable. You're like, oh, did he just talk about democratic? Is he, is, he going, is he going big government on me right here? No, here's what I mean is this. We have the biggest view of government imaginable because we have the most omnipotent person that's in charge in the whole entire universe, God himself. And, and because it has a distinct purpose in the advancement of the kingdom. So my question to you as you think about the role of government and the advancement of the kingdom of God is this. What needs to be realigned in your own posture toward God's in, uh, institution of government today? Maybe it's the fact that you need to stop bashing political leaders on your Facebook post. I, I think it says more about you than it does them. I'm just going to say it, Okay. Maybe it means that you need to obey the law in some area that you constantly disobey it just because you think it's useless. Maybe it means that you need to speak up and be more engaged in the government for the sake of the gospel. I don't know what it means for you, but I'm willing to bet with you as it is with me that God's bringing some kind of an alignment this morning as we look at Romans 13. The second piece of this is really our responsibility in it. We've talked about the government's responsibility. What's ours? Christians are called to live as dual citizens. And what I mean by that is we're called to live as citizens of heaven, as Sherry prayed in Ephesians chapter 2, but also citizens of earth. Christians are called to be the best earthly citizens imaginable because of our heavenly home. Yet some are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That's not original to me. I don't know who said it, but somebody else said it. It was good. But, but that's the truth, right? I mean, we, we have a reason to be the best citizens imaginable because this is not our home. And God calls us to be salt and light. Romans 13, 5 through 7 says this. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Isn't that crazy? The way that Paul writes about the government. Pay to all what is owed to them. Even if you don't agree with the tax bracket that you have, right? The Roman tax bracket was way worse than yours. I promise. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So this means that our leaders were called into service when they were, were called into an accountable ministry to the Lord himself. Now our conscience, or that kind of inner compass of right and wrong that each and every image bearer has, is guided 
by the Word of God for Christians and the Spirit of God for Christians. Now this means that we are more eager to live lives worthy of imitation because we belong to Jesus even in the midst of corruption. And part of the way our witness and our dual citizenship is exemplified is Christians pay taxes that the government has said we have to pay. Therefore, I said it right here, right? Pay your taxes! Maybe, maybe I mean, honestly, maybe that's what you need to walk away with today. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I know it's frustrating. I know you wish you had more control. I know all of those things. But your submissive witness says something about your God. It says something about who Jesus is and what he has power to do in your life. It's funny, my focus all week, <laughs> bigger view of, of God's, you know, sovereignty over the government. And I'm like, man, I'm going to be a law-abiding citizen this week, right? Wednesday goes around, blue lights in my rearview mirror. I kid you not. 60 and a 45 Lenore Church Road speed trap. I'm pulling up, pulled over. I'm like, I love you, Jesus. Love you. Nice police officer comes up. And uh, I'm just smiling. I'm saying, hey, man, I, I, I blew it. I, I, I know. I mean, I, I totally get it. You're doing your job. Thank you. He's like, hey, brother, it's okay. I'm like, oh, maybe he wants to show me grace. I don't know. <laughs> Takes my license, goes back, and he's like, hey, I docked it down to a 14. You should be good to go. And I'm like, uh, okay, that's great. But I deserve that, right? I deserved it. Should have been paying more attention. And then Megan and I go down to South Florida for a couple days, and, and we rent a car down there. Uh, this is like the day later. I was with a group of pastors down there. And I kid you not, I park my car in a place that is, it's, it's safe. It says no parking here, but it doesn't say anything about right here. I park in there. I come back from the restaurant, $40 parking ticket on the windshield. Like, you've got to be kidding me, God. And so the next day, I was like, somebody else got to drive today, all right? I'm not driving. But I say all that, you know, to just, to just mention that, like, it serves a purpose. And our posture Toward even law that we don't agree with or we wish didn't, you know, wish wasn't like administered to us. It doesn't make any kind of difference. But your relationship and your heart and your posture toward that is what matters the most. So what happens when our citizenship on this earth and our citizenship in heaven do not align? I think we have three options. I've talked about this before. Or when they do align or they don't align, rather, when you're kind of determining that. Three things that we kind of need to think about. We can either reject what's been shown to us, we can receive the law, or we can redeem in partnership. So rejection, sometimes our government is so out of line with God's word that we just have to reject certain aspects of it. I mean, we see this in the Bible. We see this with people like Esther. We see this with people like Daniel who said, you got to bow down to this, the, you know, this idol. We see the Hebrew midwives in Egypt who all go against the rulers of their day, and they risk their very lives because they are so in line with the heart of God. And sometimes, church, we're going to have to do that. But we cannot throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater and say that we, we, we shouldn't obey anything that the government has set in place. But there are some things that we must reject regardless of the consequences because of our God. There are other things that we just receive. Many things in the civil government are just received by Christians. Things like a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit on Lenore Church Road, right? 
things that we just receive, they're, they're for, the, they're for the, the, the betterment of the community, right? They're for the flourishing of the community. I don't need to be driving 60 miles an hour on that road. It's dangerous. What if a kid darted out, you know? I just need to receive that. There are lots of things that we must receive. And then there are things that Christians, because of our hope in the gospel, seek to redeem. And this is the one I want to hone in on. There are many things that the church, many ways rather, that the church has abdicated our role as citizens with conviction uh, in our citizenship on this earth. And we do this by simply rejecting things that we could seek to redeem by the power of the Holy Spirit and the effort of God's people. Could be leaning in to help enforce some kind of public policy that's in line with the scriptures. I know some of you in here are advocates of, 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 of the rights of the unborn, of, of rights of children, lots of things like that. It could mean serving in the military uh, or the local government seeking to be a force for good for all people, doing everything you can to be someone who can be led. But I fear that our pride keeps us, with, keeps us often from partnering with the government in ways um, to help heaven come to earth sometimes. One of the ways our church engages is by serving others, right? That's a, th- a thing that's unique to New City Church that I love is that we feel a weight of care just like a good government does for all of the constituents of our community. We want everyone to have the opportunity to flourish. So what's our posture? It's, it's like this Col- Colossians 4 posture. That we walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of our time. We're thinking, how can I make my life count, right? How can I make it count spiritually? How can I be the salt of the earth? How can others see and experience something of the kingdom of God through the way that I live my life and I hold myself and I spend my time? Now, I love this, you know, to consider how you're perceived by outsiders, how others in the community see us corporately as a people of God, as uniquely New City Church. And my prayer is that we would be known as the best and most helpful citizens in all of Gwinnett County because we belong to Jesus. How do we do this? Well, one of the ways is that we're engaged in the lives of the vulnerable in our community. Many are caring for foster children. Many are adopting children. Many serve vulnerable immigrant communities. The church cannot simply wait for the government to engage every social issue. Relational brokenness calls for relational engagement, and that's what we're best at, isn't it, church? My prayer is that this community, that this city would fill a gaping hole if New City Church was not here. Because of what we bring as citizens of this earth and citizens of heaven. We as a church have a value that calls us to be the kind of people who engage this world and exercise our dual citizenship. One of our values is that we are called to be in the city and for the city. God has done something miraculous in this place that he's called New City Church. We have favor in this city because God has gone before us and given us favor. In most cities, the local government does not like the church. I don't know if you know that or not. And, and, and why? Because most of the churches are a drain on the government. 
They're a drain on the city. Most churches are not known for their earthly citizenship, and that, that's really sad to me. But God has seen it fit to do something very different in this city. We live in a city where in 2017, the mayor of this city brought us to this building and said, we want you and your church in this building. We want you here. We want you to be a force for good in our community. We cannot flourish without healthy churches who want to serve our city and preach the gospel. Would you consider planting your roots here? Isn't that miraculous? I talked to other church planters. They cannot believe that this happened. They cannot believe that the mayor and city council members would want a church in their community in such a, a kind of an urban-leaning place like Lawrenceville, Georgia. So what's our posture in this city? It's one of engagement and investment. We have a very strong theology of place that's rooted in this city. We desire to posture ourselves under the authority of God and the leaders he has installed in our city and be servant-hearted dual citizens. Now, right now, it's not super hard to do that, right? We have a lot of favor. But there might be a day when we don't have a lot of favor, and we're still going to commit to the same thing. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of the Lord's call that he gave to Israel when they were exiles in Babylon. It's one passage that I looked at often from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. He says this to these exiles who are in Babylon. So they're not home. They want to be home. They're in Babylon. They're going to be there for 70 years. It's going to be a really long time. And so instead of just saying, hey, you guys should just act like temporary residents, he has a different call for them. And because we're dual citizens as well, I think this call applies to us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters, take, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Church, God has sent you to this city right now. I don't care if you want to be in New York or you want to be back home in Nebraska. God is sovereign over your call to this city right now. And he has called us to do what? To seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. I mean, think about all of these things that he calls Israel too, to build houses, to, 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 to bring up the property values in, in, in Gwinnett County, to, to live in these houses, to, to plant gardens, to make a home for your kids' birth certificates to have this city on it because you believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God that you're going to bloom where you're planted, right? That's what God has called us to do. So church, how will we steward the favor that God has given us in this city and with this local government? We seek to partner with the city in absolutely every way that we can because we're in the city and we're for the city. Now this city is broken like any other place in the world and the government is beautiful and it's flawed and it needs the church to be the church, the best citizens imaginable, partnering in every way that we can conscientiously and convictionally do so. 
Instead of having an us-against-them posture toward our city, we have an eager willingness to agree with and affirm everything that we possibly can within our convictions. We don't expect our city to become a Christian city, but we do pray for and expect Christians to be engaged in leading our city, and because of that, humanity will flourish um, because of our investment. We believe that God has sovereignly put our leaders in government in place, to, and we are called to honor them because of their roles. And, 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 and it gives us an opportunity to worship the Lord as we live in submission under that. So what's this mean for you personally today? Does it mean that your cynicism needs to stop? Let me just go ahead and answer that. Yes, that's what it means. Does it mean that your sinful attitude needs to change? Yes, it does. What would it mean for you to engage more meaningful in the community that God has called you to with your Christian witness out in the front? What is your part to play in seeing yourself as a dual citizen today? That we may interface with the institutions of this world and truly reflect our Savior, Jesus, who has redeemed us to be the best earthly citizens imaginable. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.